Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 230 through 232, which will cover manga chapters 324 through 327. And the Straw Hats begin to explore Water 7 and what it has to offer, as well as its world-famous shipbuilding company, the Galila Company. It's still kind of weird for me to say it like that, because in Japanese it's pronounced Gareira, and so it's like Gal- Galila. But obviously in English it's Galila. But it just doesn't roll off the tongue as well, I feel like. Anyways, let's get on to the synopsis. As the Straw Hats begin their exploration of Water 7 for some shipwrights that they can hire to repair the Going Merry, they meet a whole host of interesting characters and see what the city has to offer. But upon hearing their assessment of the Merry, they receive some very bad news. So yeah, differences. There aren't very many differences here in these episodes, other than a couple scenes shifted around and some small minor changes. First off, like I mentioned in the last podcast episode, the introduction of the Galila Company was shifted to here, where it was supposed to take place before they got the Yagara Bulls. Also, it's a really small change, but the old guy who recommends the young shipwright to test the cannon on the rogue pirates are drawn very differently in the manga for some reason. They're much more generic, like... They have this weird white puffy hair and yeah it just there's more detail in the anime. In addition there were a couple little scenes added or extended during their trip around the city and their Yagara Bulls. Specifically the whole bit with Nami being freaked out by that shortcut that the Yagara Bull takes. And then there's a few scenes that get played in different orders in the anime. Again probably for better pacing and to fit into the episodic structure. Like Robin and Chopper shopping, Zoro being attacked on the Mary, and Luffy and company reaching the number one docks. Those were all kind of shuffled around. And then lastly, we see the slight extension of the appraisal scene where we get to see the beginning as they're in the lobby and then the the teller running into the appraiser's office and telling them that they have a customer with a huge amount of gold and freaking out. That whole scene's added in the anime as well. Alrighty, so on to my thoughts on the episode. I think before I dive into the episode properly, I want to just talk about the amazing world building and beauty of the Island of Water 7. It's just freaking gorgeous and while it looks amazing in the manga, it really shines in the anime I feel like with all the vibrant colors, the lighting and the motion. The island itself is interesting in its architecture with clear inspirations from Venice, Italy. I mentioned this on podcast episode 77 but in these episodes we get a better look at the city itself and how things work. Like how people navigate around the city with the Yagara Bulls and how the infrastructure works to navigate around. As well as to get to the different levels of the city with that rising water elevator. We also get to see Water 7's economy and culture developed here as well. We get to see the whole thing with the masks and how all their food and things are based around water. There's even small subtle things like the people in Water 7 are incredibly forward and social. As you can see with how people will go out of their way to talk to outside visitors for no reason. And also, you know, how forward the men are in terms of hitting on women. I think it's just cool how everything is so well thought out. And Water 7 is easily the best island in the series thus far, in my opinion. As not only is it the best looking one, but the most fleshed out one. And it's not even a competition, I think. You know, Skypiea's culture and lore was incredible. But aside from a small part of Angel Isle, it was pretty boring in terms of aesthetics as most of the arc takes place in like a generic forest or ruins area. Alabasta was very similar in that while the world building and culture was great it was still very uninteresting to look at and it was mostly just desert and sand and you know according to Anakin he doesn't like sand and sand's not great. 
And so, yeah, this was really awesome to see in this sort of really vibrant sort of metropolitan type of city with all of this like water and life and everything. And it's really cool to watch. Anyways, with that out of the way, let's get into the episodes. So as I mentioned, we get to see Nami, Usopp, and Luffy navigate the city in their Yagara Bulls as we get to see all of Water 7's beauty and detail. One thing you'll notice prominently is how many new score tracks there are. And many of these were lifted for directly from the sixth movie and repurposed for use here. And while I haven't really mentioned this up till now, this isn't a new practice or anything. This has been done for a while now, going all the way back to the second movie, I feel like where they would pluck music from the movies and use them in the series. I mention it here because it always just stood out to me, as the music has a very distinctly different tone and feel compared to what we've seen in the past. We're then introduced to Iceberg, as well as his assistant Khalifa, and the rest of the Galila company and their shipwrights in a very cool fashion, as we see them swiftly and casually, I might add, dispose of some rowdy pirates, this was an awesome intro as we get to see a showcase of the different characters that might potentially become the next Straw Hat. This is what at the time fueled that sort of debate and mystery um, of who might best fit as the new crew member who might join because we had just been introduced to so many different characters who are just quickly, you know, established as strong and capable characters that are very quirky too in terms of personality that could easily, you know, fit in with the Straw Hats. Kind of on a side tangent though, one joke I never really understood till just this rewatch when I really took a step back and looked closer at the customs and culture of Water 7. And it's the sexual harassment joke. Until now, I was not sure that there's more to it other than, you know, being random and just playing on the fact that Khalifa is an, an attractive young woman in a workplace that's predominantly full of men. But when you look at it through the lens of the culture of the men in Water 7 and how kind of pushy and forward they are when it comes to hitting on women, as shown with Robin earlier on, you can probably kind of imply that Khalifa has had to deal with a lot of this stuff regularly and is now just kind of going over the top calling everything sexual harassment. And so yeah, that had never really occurred to me just until this particular rewatch. And it's kind of interesting whether that was intentional or not on Oda's part, but it is a very, like, you know, subtle character detail that's included in there. Going back to our characters, later on when Luffy arrives and asks one of the bystanders in the crowd, we get a townsperson exposition dumping of, of various prominent members of the Galila company. I remember when I first saw this moment, I wanted either Polly or Kaku to join, as they both had, like, really cool character designs and seemingly fun and unique personalities as well. However, after this scene, the trio need to get the gold to an appraiser and get it exchanged for actual cash so they can spend it. This scene has always been a favorite of mine because of how it showcases how vital Nami is to the crew for her sort of financial and operations type role in keeping the crew running as she makes sure they aren't getting swindled left and right. And yeah, in this scene, Nami is freaking awesome. Like how after being given an insanely low-balled appraisal, while Luffy and Usopp are freaking out about an impressively high amount of 100 million berries, Nami's foot comes crashing down as she coolly but threateningly informs the appraiser of three things. One, that Luffy holds a bounty of 100 million. Two, she's not satisfied with the appraisal. And three, if he lies again, his head will fly and points to Luffy. And that is just badass. Of course, it turns out the gold was worth three times that amount at 300 million berries. And so yeah, they're now super rich and have all the money in the world to try and fix the going merry. 
And you don't really think about it because it is, uh, you know, just a story and, and it's worth a work of fiction. And you don't really think about the money aspect of it. But at the same time, you do kind of realize how big of a deal this is because, you know, the Straw Hats aren't really like your traditional like plundering pirates where they specifically steal money from other people or sort of salvage and raid things. So they're pretty poor for the most part, aside from Nami, who, you know, keeps a close eye on, on the money situation. But yeah, I mean, it's mentioned a couple of times during Skype here that they are almost broke um, as they haven't really had any way of making money. And so now them having 300 million berries is a huge deal. And with that money in hand, they head to the ship docks to meet with Iceberg. But meanwhile, going back to the rest of the crew, they kind of do their own thing with Robin and Chopper going out together for a bit of shopping and exploring, which we'll get back to her in a bit. But back on the Mary, Sanji realizing that he's been left on board with the Mary and just Zoro decides he'll go out grocery shopping because he doesn't want to hang out with Zoro. And Zoro obviously stays behind to guard the ship. But yeah, getting back to Robin, it's so cute seeing Robin and Chopper together as they are the two most intellectual members of the crew as well as the oldest and youngest members. So there's this sort of big sister dynamic here too. You also don't really find this out till a little bit later, but there's another really fun reason why their pairing makes sense. But I won't spoil that till it organically comes up much later in the story. One interesting to note is how observant Robin is of her surroundings, to the point where she picks up on the most minute of details, as she says it's a habit of hers, obviously hinting at her past living on the run, always on her own and never being able to trust or let her guard down. And I think this fact is so heartbreaking and an amazing bit of character development is you know how chopper is in awe of this ability and praises it like it's some super ability robin just kind of stays silent and we never actually get to see her face during this because to chopper who has lived mostly sh a sheltered life does not realize the immense trauma of living a life that requires you to become that good at being paranoid of your surroundings to that degree and for robin this skill only reminds her of just how difficult scary and painful her life has been up till now however just when you think robin is free of this life and she's having a fun outing with her new family a random huge person in a mask walks past her and whispers i'm cp9 which startles robin and shakes her and eventually while chopper is in the bookstore robin just disappears and the music here becomes very ominous as things start to take a turn as we see Zoro being attacked while napping on the Mary, but Zoro being the badass he is that he can't be snuck up on and immediately makes quick work of the Frankie family. This is just a classic scene with an awesome Zoro one-liner calling them unlucky, despite them thinking that they've been lucky leaving Zoro alone on the Mary. And it's here Zoro shows off a new Nitoryu or two-sword style move called Rhino Cycle. However, one thing I want to note here, just a fun fact, in Japanese, it's just called cycle because this is a wordplay in Japanese as all Zoro moves generally are. So Rhino in Japanese is sai. So when you add the cool suffix, it just becomes cycle. And it's a move where he sticks his swords up like a rhino horn and then spins around, which is pretty obvious. I don't really know why I'm explaining this part. But the other thing to note about this scene is we get to see this you know, scene in the opening. And I feel like it's done a lot better there because we actually get to see the full move animated from an overhead shot where he actually spins. But instead we get that classic like cost cutting shot of where it's just a still image with some sound effects and it's super disappointing. 
Like, why couldn't they just reuse the animation from the opening if they're going to go that route? I feel like they used extra money to animate that one keyframe. Next, we see that the Straw Hats return to number one dock to visit the Galila company and run into one of the top shipwrights, Kaku, who funnily sports a long nose, but it's square, kind of similar to Usopp. And I love how this is acknowledged by the characters and turned into a running joke as even Zoro and Sanji have their moment with mistaking Kaku for Usopp later on. And even one of the other shipwrights, Lulu, mentions it in a couple episodes from now as well. One thing that's completely lost in translation here is when Luffy and Usopp inquire about how Kaku talks like an old man, and Kaku states that he's actually only 23. And whether you're watching this in the dub or the sub, it really doesn't make much sense to you if you don't really understand sort of the nuances of Japanese language. And there's really no way to sort of reflect this in either the subtitles or in the dubbings. So it's just kind of a weird throwaway line if you're just watching it as an English only speaker. But the reason for this is the way Kaku speaks, he uses a way of speaking that's generally associated with older people. Like ending sentence with jia instead of desu, which is translated as is or to be. Or when referring to themselves, they say washi instead of you know, the normal watashi. And this is actually called yakuarigo or role language as an acting role. In Japanese media, it's used as an auditory shorthand to explain character traits. So if you want to show that your character is old at heart or old fashioned or just old, you can make them speak like this and it immediately tells the audience, oh, this person is old or old at heart or wise. Or another famous one is, you know, samurai warriors speak, like when they see things like sesha or gozaru, you know, that's an easy way of telling them, oh, they're an old fashioned, you know, samurai warrior type of person. And while I don't live in Japan, for what it's worth, and, you know, I have visited Japan many times and know many people who are native speakers here in the US as well as in Japan, and, you know, have extended family there, as well as speaking Japanese fluently myself with family and friends, I have never heard anyone in real life, old or young, speak like this. Like, all the old people I know speak more or less the same, just with less slang terms of young people. And so, yeah, I think it's this is definitely sort of a, um, like a media or, you know, cinematic way of speaking. With Iceberg away at the moment, Kaku offers to go survey the Mary while they wait, and then shows off his amazing ability of being super fast and acrobatic as he just starts dashing hella fast off the drop-off and jumps towards the coast. And as Sanji is out shopping, he he sees Kaku jumping around and then mistakes him for Usopp, like I mentioned earlier. But we also finally get to see what happened to Robin from Sanji's point of view, as we see she's being led away by that mysterious mass CP9 guy. And things are getting a bit precarious as Robin looks like she's being coerced, even though she seems not to be struggling, but kind of going with this guy unwillingly. On top of that, another wrench to throw into this mystery is that once Luffy and company meet Iceberg, Kaifa reports to Iceberg on them and lists the current bounties aboard the crew and mentions Robin. And this immediately catches Iceberg's attention, almost as he's little in shock, but doesn't really let on to anybody else and continues to welcome the Straw Hats. But it is a very interesting note that he seems to know Robin a little bit more and is actually a little bit more concerned about her than Luffy himself, who is the higher bounty. And there's also this really random thing that has nothing to do with anything, but I just really enjoy it. We get this really fun but 
you know, random story about how you just found a, this cute little mouse and then names him on the spot as Tyrannosaurus. And it's, and it's so random, like, you know, this like very prestigious, like CEO and mayor of Water 7 has this like really childlike aspect to him as we see throughout the remaining episodes and throughout the arc. But it's just another reason why I really like Iceberg as a character. We then see a funny interaction where they kind of start talking down to Iceberg because he doesn't seem to be taking his job seriously, as well as rudely talking about Iceberg. And then Khalifa then shows off her strength as well as she unleashes a flurry of kicks on the three. And this is another scene that's taken directly from the opening, but it's actually taken almost exactly, and they didn't change anything, which was nice to see. And showing us that even the assistant of this company is capable and hella strong. However, the funny part is Iceberg, as it's comically revealed, more of the kicks landed on his face than any of the straw hats aside from Usopp, who takes one right in the face. And then Luffy yelling back, you're the one being rude. And then following that, we get another funny scene with Iceberg as he reads Kokoro's note and then proceeds to rip it up like he's not going to honor it. But then he's like, it's fine. When Usopp barks back, then why did you rip it up? He mentions the kiss mark was unpleasant. <laughs> and... And, I, and I'm starting to really love Iceberg, like I mentioned. And However, you know, knowing what, what I know about their relationship, I actually completely understand this, and it makes a lot of sense. And if you ever go back and rewatch this after you've seen the whole arc, then this part will probably make a little bit more sense. However, before moving on to the tour of the shop, Usopp discovers the money is stolen by the Frankie family, but as luck would have it, one of the primary shipwrights, Polly, is running from some debt collectors, and needs a way to escape and sees the Frankie family's Yagara bull and takes them out to use it for escape. Polly shows off a really cool and unique fighting style using ropes along with the development of his character made me immediately pin Polly as the possible new recruit. And we're also introduced to the other main shipwright, Rob Lucci, as the more straight-laced, silent, stoic type. Well, I guess he isn't all that silent as he has this weird character quirk where he communicates exclusively through ventriloquism of a pigeon named Hattori, which happens to be my namesake, actually. <laughs> but this is actually a fun wordplay in Japanese as Hattori is a fairly common last name, but Hato in Japanese is pigeon, although my actual last name is not pigeon or has anything to do with pigeon. Luchi is also shown to be a very capable fighter in terms of strength, as well as he takes the full brunt of Polly's attack and stops it with one arm and even going as far as piercing the stone ground with his fingers. This is also a scene we see in the opening, which I feel was better animated there. Polly and Luchi seem to have a sibling rivalry style relationship, but because they're both so strong, it can seem somewhat outright hostile. However, the best moment of this entire sequence has got to be Luffy's reaction to Hattori. Luffy gets angry that Polly attacks Luchi because, as he sees it, it was the pigeon that did all the trash talking, thinking that the pigeon is controlling the man rather than the other way around. And and that shot of him making that realization as the screen goes dark around him with the lightning sound is just golden. <laughs> I laughed so hard with Luffy's sort of like, it's the pigeon that's talking. From here, we learn more about Iceberg from Khalifa as we get some more exposition. And he truly does seem like a great man. And I certainly begin to like him after hearing the type of man and leader he is. Of course, Luffy is who he is and rather rudely just goes up to him and immediately asks him to join his crew, much like he did with Kuraha back in Drum. 
He of course declines, but says that if he can convince any one of his shipwrights, he's free to ask around for any potential crew members. One thing that Iceberg seems to be rather interested and concerned with is the fact that Robin is part of their crew, and the sense that I get is that he's concerned or weary about this fact for some reason. Of course, we won't know more about it until later in the story, but it is kind of an interesting note. In the next scene, we see that the Frankie family sneak up and jump Usopp while no one is around and no one seems to notice. And remember that Usopp has two cases, and that's 200 million berries. Just then, we see Kaku return from his assessment of the Going Merry, but we don't hear the assessment. But instead, we suddenly cut to Zoro's reaction to the assessment, which doesn't seem good. We then re return to the Galila company and finally hear Kaku's assessment, and he drops a devastating bombshell on us and the crew that the Mary can't be repaired. Polly inquired if it was the keel that was damaged beyond repair, and with the final scene of this episode being Zoro looking to Mary and asking if she really can't sail anymore. And I can't tell you how much my heart sank when I first read this because it was such an unexpected gut punch. I mean, never in my wildest imagination did I ever think they'd get here to find that the Mary is done for and can't be fixed. Like, I was definitely still in denial at this point. As it was a, you know, a shonen series and there's no way the Mary could be done. And there was going to be some, you know, that some miracle that was yet to be discovered that would save Mary and they would find a way to miraculously fix her as the arc progressed. And that's, you know, that was my mentality going through this sort of arc. And things were looking bad, though, with this, you know, news with Usopp being attacked as well as two thirds of the money being stolen at this point. Even if they wanted to throw all the money at it as possible... They now had significantly less unless they got it back. And not only that, Robin's mysteriously disappeared as well, which is concerning after the ominous message from Aokiji as well as Iceberg's sort of ominous curiosity towards her. And yeah, this is one of the reasons why I love Water 7 though. It just seems like every progressive episode the stakes get higher and there's more and more uncertainty introduced with each moment and it makes everything that much more gripping and intense. And like I said, Water 7 is amazing when it comes to storytelling, and we're just getting started, believe me. But yeah, th I mean, this is quite possibly the worst turn of events we could have ever heard. I honestly couldn't imagine a world where we didn't have the Going Merry journeying with us. However, Oda is just getting started with Water 7, and I can't wait to discuss the next several episodes. Actually, pretty much the entire rest of the arc is just escalation after escalation. But yeah, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. If you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter at SunnyGoPodcast. If you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection, please check those out. As always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to listen to my podcast. And I will have a spoiler section here following this, just talking about a few points. But if you're not interested in any of those, stay safe out there, and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye! Alright, so spoiler section. Yeah, there's actually a decent amount to talk about. I think one of the first things that I want to mention is just, yeah, how there's actually quite a bit of foreshadowing of the fact that, yeah, Kaku, Luchi, and Khalifa are villains. Um, and it's interesting to see that because of they're a few of the characters that actually get showcased in terms of how much strength they have. You know, with Kaku's like mad speed and acrobatics as well as Luchi's insane strength and then Kaifa's you know ability to just sort of 
her mastery of martial arts and all that. And it's pretty interesting to see that. And not only that, the cover of Volume 34 also kind of spoils or foreshadows that twist as well. As if you look at the cover, you see Kaku's eyes kind of like cast in shadow. And, you know, he's normally depicted as this very lighthearted and very kind person. But seeing Kaku like that on the cover is just kind of weird. And you kind of see later on and you understand why that is. The other character obviously is Luchi. I mean, he's always looks kind of like he's angry or mean. But again, he's very front and center on that cover as well. And so, yeah, if you look at that cover and you're just like, these guys don't look like good guys. Of course, we'll talk more about that twist later on when it actually happens. And then speaking of the CP9 members, we also see when Sanji is chasing after Robin and who we find out later is Bluno. And he just kind of, they both kind of just vanish into thin air in the alley. That's obviously, he's using his door-to-door fruit to escape. And then similarly, when Polly and Luchi kind of have their little scuffle, and you realize the way that Luchi kind of shrugs off that attack and has his fingers embedded into the ground, he's basically using Tekkai and Shigang at the same time to sort of cushion the blow and to dig his fingers into the ground. And yeah, just seeing those little details now that you know, you know, after the fact that he can use the Rokushiki, you know, techniques. And he basically just used two of them at the same time. And then there's the fact that, yeah, I think for me personally, during this time when, when these episodes and when these chapters were originally being published or aired, I honestly thought that Polly was going to be the one that joins the crew. He just seemed like he had the chemistry with the crew and, and had like a cool ability. And I liked his character design. And yeah, I thought Polly was going to join until it got to a very specific moment when they got to the Puffing Tom. And I saw that Frankie essentially was almost always paired up and he was kind of becoming the focus. I was like, huh, I think maybe this is going to be Frankie who's going to join. And you know what's funny? Even up until the very moment where it's kind of all but confirmed when he essentially burns the Pluton plans and decides to join them. And he starts fighting Fukuro. Like, that's basically when, when I really like that. Oh, okay, it is going to be Frankie. Like, up until then, I still had some doubt as to whether Frankie would actually join. And I remember the internet was pretty, like, you know, contentious around this topic, too. Like, there was a lot of debate as to who was going to be the next crew member. Not dissimilar to, like, what's happening now with, like, Yamato and like all the other potential members like Carrot and and Momonosuke and all that with Wano and all of that stuff. But yeah, it is it is very interesting that, you know, history has not changed. And then yeah, lastly, you know, finding out that Mary wasn't gonna be able to be fixed. I I had a hard time believing that. You know, I I, I think I came to accept it a lot sooner. But upon hearing it in this moment, I was literally in denial. Like, I was like, there's just no way the going Mary was going to be, you know, left behind and that they're not going to be journeying with, with her and, and whatnot. And so, yeah, it was it was a really crazy thing. And the whole thing with the going Mary is just insane. And I think it was really well done by Oda, in all honesty. And we'll definitely get to, to all of that once we get towards the end of the arc and, and that whole story is finished but yeah I, re- I distinctly remember thinking to myself there's just no way that we're not going to have the going merry 
But anyways, that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about here in the spoiler section. So yeah, thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next episode. See ya!